Hey everyone, welcome to the Crypto Unstacked podcast. I'm your host, Leslie Lamb. Wherever you are, whoever you are, crypto skeptic, half believer, or enthusiast, it's really great to have you tuning in to Crypto Unstacked, where we bring you a cup of crypto every week and unstack everything from crypto finance to global macroeconomics. This podcast assumes basic knowledge of crypto and aims to explore some more advanced topics about the crypto markets, such as trading strategies, lending, and derivatives. The Crypto Unstacked podcast is meant for informational purposes only and should not be considered as financial or investment advice. Nothing expressed in this podcast should be construed as a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer by Amber Group to buy or sell any financial products. Information expressed by the host or guest in this podcast does not necessarily reflect the views of Amber Group. This week, I chat with Nicola Santoni, principal at Lemniscap, an investment firm based in Hong Kong, specializing in investments in crypto assets and blockchain startups. Nicola joins us for the fourth episode of the DeFi Defined series. In this episode, we unstack the evolution of automated market-making designs in DeFi from Uniswap to Mooniswap. We also explore Open and Hedgic, two on-chain options trading protocols. Nicola gives us a great primer for a deeper conversation on options protocol designs, which we dive into in an exciting bonus episode. There's a lot of information packed into this next hour. Thanks so much for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Nicola, welcome to Crypto Unstacked. It's really great to have you join me on the pod. Oh, thank you very much for having me. It's great to start off the morning with a good cup of coffee and fun chat about crypto. And we have a lot to cover on automated market making, DeFi options, and DeFi governance tokens as well. As always, would love it if you could start us off with an intro so our listeners can know more about how you're involved with this space. Sure, sure. Well, I am a principal at Lemniscup which is an investment firm specializes in investments in emerging crypto assets and blockchain startups. Lemniscap has been active since the end of 2017, been deploying in the space and throughout different verticals. Myself, I have a, let's say, educational background in, in finance. That's what I started with. I went to financial engineering, structured products in Paris for a French bank. And then I moved to uh, trading derivatives, specifically options on equity. So single stocks, ETFs, indices. And I played also a little bit with the correlation and light exotics. And that's what I pretty much did for several years. I, I moved banks and I moved cities, but the focus was always uh, trading options or trading volatility, as we also say. I touched crypto for the first time in 2014 when I actually find myself in New York. It's a funny story. I find myself uh, in New York in, in a bar and a guy next to me was trading something on the cell phone. And, and I asked him, what, what are you doing? Like, what are you trading? You know, so strange to trade in a, in a bar. And he said, oh, Bitcoin. 
And I said, oh, I said, I heard of it. And, you know, funny story, we started chatting and chatting and chatting. And for like three, four months, we we wanted to build a option exchange on Bitcoin, which was what I uh, naturally would come to the space for. That was, you know, the first time that I really dealt with crypto and, and Bitcoins. Nothing really happened at the end. Fast forward to 2017, I was still in New York at the time and volatility and volumes capture my attentions again. And, and I decided to move to Hong Kong to pursue full time a career in crypto. And that's where I was lucky enough to meet the partners at Lemisca. And why Hong Kong? Very curious. All the way from New York. Uh, true, true. Well, the reason it's quite straightforward, I said, look, if crypto and blockchain is going to be a thing, uh, United States and the dollar in general, they're going to fight it hard. And, and I said, this is not the right place uh, to be. And at that time, if, if you remember 2017, Asia was really ahead of the curve. I lived in Hong Kong in 2011 for one year and I liked it a lot. It was very vibrant and, you know, I loved everything about it. It was really a life choice to come back to Asia. And uh, I felt this was the center of the movement at that time. And I think I made a great choice. Well, I think so as well, because otherwise I don't think we would have met, right? We're both in Hong Kong, so. Correct, correct. <laughs> now that's great knowing that you have a seasoned background trading options, and we'll definitely touch on that later in our conversation. But to start off, the theme for this episode is DeFi trading. With Andrew King, we talked about the evolution of incentivization mechanisms. I also thought it would be cool to go through the evolution of various automated market-making designs we've seen in this space. And so I guess we can start off with the basics and build from there. Nicola, what is the purpose of an automated market maker? Sure. So it's always good to start with the basics and then build on it. AMMs, so automated market makers, can be thought as an algorithm agent that performs functions or a function. In this specific case, is providing liquidity to support active trading in an electronic market. So this role is usually taken by market makers in traditional order book models. But in automatic market maker, the purposes are mainly three. The first one is to provide constant and available liquidity. The second is to have and provide a transparent and deterministic pricing. So you basically know what you will get. And then it you could see it as a democratization of liquidity provision. In reality, AMMs were not completely new to crypto. Few might know that the logarithmic market scoring rule was actually used by Gnosis and Ogre in their first iteration for their prediction market. So it's not really completely new. Obviously, Uniswap, which is the first mover, I would say, in, in the space, relies on one specific function, and it's the constant function market maker. Got it. Okay. So these constant function market makers are a subset, as you mentioned, of automated market makers. Can you tell us more about what they are? And then we'll kind of go into the different types that we see in DeFi today. Sure, sure. So constant function market maker, as we 
you know, the definition says it's a fairly new primitive, to be honest, on the crypto at the space. They gain popularity because they are actually very well suited for the scope. The scope is having decentralized exchange. They're based on a function that predefines a range of prices solely based on quantities currently available of two of more assets in a pool. So the price relies on the quantities available in a pool. Instead of trading against an order book base, so I go on a regular traditional market and I see the list of available prices and the quantities that people want to buy and sell, traders actually interact against the pool of assets. The constant part comes in in the sense that any trade occurred must change the reserves in a way that the product of those two reserves, say asset A and asset B, in the case of Uniswaps, remains unchanged. Mathematically speaking, remaining unchanged means that they are equal to a constant. It's actually fairly simple. And, and I believe that the simplicity of it, it was what contributed to the vast popularity. To better understand, this is usually my, my approach on everything when I see a market. I try to understand who are the players, right? So there are three main players. Obviously, traders that you know come to the pool to, to trade, buy and sell. There are the liquidity providers and there are arbitrageurs. So the crucial role here is taken by the liquidity providers or LPs who are willing to accept trades against their portfolio of both assets in exchange for fees. So the very simplified form, like not considering fees right now, is X times Y equal K, right? So X and Y are the reserves of each asset. And in practice, Uniswap charges also 0.3% of trading fees, which is added to reserve. So technically, uh, K, which is the content, increases a little bit by the fees. There's an interesting thing that the automatic market makers are not bonding curves. I see it sometimes a little bit of uh, misconception. Bonding curve is simply a relationship between price and supply of a token, while the constant function market maker is a relationship between two tokens. I see. Then can you talk about the different types of constant function market makers that we're seeing today? You mentioned Uniswap. Which one of these creates the most interesting incentive mechanism to incentivize liquidity on the platform and therefore, you know, getting more trading going on these platforms? Sure, sure. So, you know, as usual, there is a first mover in the space and then explodes in success. And, and that's what happened basically with Uniswap. So Uniswap is a constant function market maker. And we just mentioned how, how it works. The next iteration came with a constant mean market maker, which is a generalization of a constant product market maker, but allows for more than two assets and, and weights. So two assets with different weights outside the traditional 50-50. So you still have reserves of each assets and, and now you had the weights of each assets and you still have a constant. So let's make it very simple and forget about the fees. Constant mean market maker makes sure 
that the weighted geometric mean of the reserves for each asset remain constant. So let's say you have, I don't know, four assets, right? A, B, C, D. It would work that A times B times C times D exponentially to one fourth equal K. That's how it works. Then we saw an explosion, and, and I'll try to, to you know, give an, an opinion on why we saw this explosion of hybrids, constant functional market makers. What is an hybrid? An hybrid, as it says, the word is, it's built to trade assets that satisfy particular properties. In this case, low volatility and stable coins, for example. So the addition of the hybrid constant function market maker is to reduce slippage. Mm-hmm. The actual formula is a little bit complicated and not, not easy to explain in words, but basically it's, as it says, it's a hybrid between a constant sum and a constant product. The addition here is called amplification coefficient, which is sort of like thinking as a modifiable constant that has a quality similar to what could be a leverage. So it modifies the range of those asset price that will be profitable for liquidity providers. Generally speaking, the more volatile are the assets, the higher the amplification coefficient should be. So that's the relationship on a high level. This function, the hybrid one, acts as a constant sum when the portfolio is well balanced and and shift towards a constant product as the portfolio becomes more and more unbalanced. That's, That's why it's hybrid. The last one for now is the addition that we saw from um, one inch. So the mm-hmm. moon is warp. It's, um, it's really last creation came out a few days ago. It's, it, I think that the idea is to capture a portion of the price slippage, which maybe we can touch later on is quite interesting concept. Profit for, for LPs. Basically, they try to take these profits from, from the arbitragers and give it back to, to the liquidity providers. It basically adds a time component to it. There are virtual balances for different swaps so that the slippage revenue stays in the pool. When a swap happens inside the AMM, the algorithm doesn't really apply the supply to to everybody to, to be arbitraged. Instead, the AMM improves the exchange rate slowly in, in the case of one inch over a five minute period, I think. So in this way, you spread the slippage over time and, and you don't give the opportunity to be collect by arbitrage. And the end goal, I mean, we still have to see how it's gonna play out. So, but the end goal is to attract, attract liquidity and, and splitting the fee between LPs and referral coming from from different integration platforms, which is very, very in vogue lately. So I would say that depending on what assets you want to trade, different models from different teams and projects have been deployed to match that sort of demand. And in, in terms of incentives, I think you asked, basically the buyer side, well, you have a faster exchange model in the sense that liquidity is always there. It comes with a cost, obviously, which maybe we, we can touch later. For project, I think this is also a 
way more democratic and easier and cheaper access to market and liquidity. And, you know, I think that's a really good step forward for, for access to new assets. Yeah. Wow. You, you talked about a lot of interesting points there. And I did want to anchor on, on your point about Muniswap, uh, which, as you say, is One Inch's new AMM design. And for those of our, our listeners who aren't familiar with One Inch, they're effectively a DeFi liquidity aggregator, right? Yeah, yeah. We haven't gotten into the details of exactly what, or I guess how liquidity providers actually earn income or earn profits on these automated market makers, but effectively it's been through fees, right? From swapping these fees. assets. But on Muniswap, what you're saying is liquidity providers should be able to profit more on this platform than on other AMM platforms. And I think their white paper said something around the range of generating 50 to 200% more income compared to Uniswap V2, which is very significant, especially for the more liquid pools, which are these stablecoin pools, right? And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's very interesting how Muniswap is trying to tilt the equation in favor of the liquidity providers as arbitragers. They can really just profit from these temporarily mispriced pools, which now there are, I guess, more designs trying to figure out how to make that a bit more democratic as well. Yes. Yeah, I, it's exactly as you said. I, I think that basically arbitragers were something needed right, in the model, because those AMMs are not independent completely. They, they also have to be seen related to other markets outside, like centralized exchange and, 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 and other market platforms. So they were well needed. And then at some point, people realized, well, arbitragers are making most of the money here and, and not the liquidity providers. So there is this very interesting relationship between fees and slippage. It's, it's very interesting. That's all the game for liquidity providers, basically. The relationship between transactions, fees, slippage, and these three. Yeah, so constant function market makers, they incur large slippage costs, as you say, and that's the flack that Uniswap has gotten, right? Is, is that for executing larger orders, especially when you add on that swap fee, it kind of eats into the actual trade. So are there other projects out there that are solving for this issue to minimize slippage and increase capital efficiency? And something else that I, I definitely want to have you talk about is this concept of impermanent loss for liquidity providers. So can you just talk about perhaps one project? Yeah. So the these two components, basically, they uh, they go together, right? The slippage and the impermanent loss. The slippage is the main point and the main pain point, which is what projects are, are really tackling. And is the risk in dealing with um, AMM compared to buying with an order book? difference, right? This is the main the main pain point. Slippage is a natural tendency of prices to move against the direction of buyer and sellers. This happens as the trader absorb liquidity from the pool, basically taking off liquidity from the pool, which intuitively means that the larger the trade, the, the greater the slippage. And on the other side, there are the permanent loss for LPs, which occurs whenever the relative external market price of an asset diverge from the price at which you provided the liquidity from the liquidity provider perspective. So what does it mean is that if, if, if the price moves and then returns to the point where I provided liquidity, I would be fine. 
But if the price diverge for a certain extent, like 25% or 50% or, or doubles from where I, I provided liquidity, you have an impairment loss that goes from roughly 1% to 5.7% if the price doubles. So it's very interesting to see when liquidity providers actually make money and when they lose money. And one model that I find quite interesting is the Bunker V2 model, which, uh, yeah, if, if you want, I can, I can expand a little bit on that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Bancor released their V2 quite recently, right? And on a very high level, their aim with this new V2 is to introduce this concept of liquidity amplification. This is to answer what we've been talking about, which is how do they help to increase capital efficiency while reducing slippage, right? And make more of a better trading experience in the other pools that we see out there. So yeah, we'd, we'd love to have you talk about that. So as we said, always start from the basics, right? <laughs> and move and move up from there. We touched before on that, on the hybrid model. So some still critic that the current models require a large amount of liquidity to reduce the effect of slippage, right? So you need a lot of money in the pool to make it attractive for a trader competing with centralized exchange. So to mitigate that, those hybrid models came along, discovering that changing the pricing curve of an AMM, actually you can create denser pockets of liquidity that drastically reduce the price leapage. But this is just given on a specific range of prices. So this is exactly what liquidity amplification is. So the idea is then a new type of AMM where the liquidity is concentrated within a specific range of prices. So rather than provided along an unlimited market-making price range, which is the Uniswap model, right? Like liquidity forever for everybody. Here you have an AMM where let's say that on a traditional AMM with 100,000 in its reserve, a 10% slippage would happen on a $10,000 trade, let's say. If you introduce a 20 times amplification, the slippage would be something around 1%. I really liked the banker, as we said, model. Why? Because it's a new iteration of the hybrid constant function market maker. So uh, as we said, the hybrid constant function market maker actually enable very low slippage because of a combination of two exchange rate curves, right? So it's it's an hybrid between the two. The linear part is mocking the constant sum. And then when it gets parabolic, so when there is a very big order, then you start picking up the, the constant product model. So while, uh, you know, those existing protocols and they have been used mostly for very low volatile assets as stablecoin or, or wrapped um, synthetics underlyings. Bunker wants to apply this model to volatile assets, which is fairly you know, revolutionary, I would say. So the very basics are four concepts. There are single reserve pool token, which means that every pool is actually anchored to two pool tokens, one for reserved. There is a staked balance 
and the current balance. So for each reserve, stake balance indicates how much liquidity provider have been staking in the first place. And then there is a current balance, which is indicates how much of these tokens are held in reserve, because that's eventually all the point for our liquidity providers, right? Is how much I put inside the pool and how much I'm, I'm going to get off. And then the third concept is dynamic weights. The weights are, you know, as I said, the word is going to change dynamically. And then there is a price feed. This is the latest external introduction and, and we'll see how it works. So the actual name is dynamic automatic market maker, as they call it. The claim is to reduce the impermanent loss using a sort of pegged liquidity reserves. So it's going to keep the relative value of the AMMs reserve constant. How does it do that? It introduces oracles, chain link in this case, which allow the banker pools, the, the V2 pools we're talking about, to maintain a very accurate exchange rate because the price is actually pulled from an external source, right? So you don't wait for arbitrageurs to change that, but it changes automatically with an oracle. Mm -hmm. So even when the price of the token is changing, as a result of, uh, you know, things moving on, on different exchanges, even if doesn't, even if nothing happens in the, in the bank or V2 pool, the Chainlink Oracle would change the weights. So in this way, they aim to give back the profits to the liquidity providers instead of giving away to the arbitragers. It's interesting because now we can see that this new AMM version is a sort of connected to the external world and the pool reflects also what's happening outside, right? While before they were completely independent from anything that could happen outside and they relied only on arbitragers. That's the main difference, basically. So instead of relying on arbitragers fixing the exchange rate, the Oracle does that job and the liquidity providers actually have a better way to capture and maintain a V2 pool on Bancor issues two separate tokens. So there are two tokens issued instead of one and, and, and every token represents the reserves, right? And one for each asset. When a user stakes a liquidity in a pool, the amount of tokens is recorded, obviously in a blockchain, and that's the pool staked balance. That's a sort of thinking like an obligation that the pool has in conference of the liquidity providers. It's like, okay, that's what you brought to the pool and that's what I want you to give back. So what happens? It, it's not a contract, right? It's decentralized finance. There's no, there's no lawyers and anything. So when a pool current balance is not equal to the stake balance, the pool weights are adjusted, as we said before. And in order to incentivize arbitragers to return to the primary reserves, so to bring it back to 1-1, one, one, the fees are distributed accordingly. So there is a few final caveat here. So Banker doesn't really cut away the role of arbitragers. Like they're still needed, but they play a very different role compared to the other models. So they are needed to bring the balance back to 50-50 from the staked to the reserved. So bankers still incentivize arbitragers 
but they don't incentivize arbitrageurs to take the profits away in a way which is taken care of by the Oracle. Mm. It's kept by the liquidity providers, but it's done giving to the liquidity providers who provide liquidity on the lower weighting assets, basically increasing fees and giving a higher ROI in order to bring back the reserve to 50-50. So logically, what will happen is something that it starts with 50-50, then there are some trades and goes to 70-30, right? In that case, the Oracle fix back the percentage and the weights to 70-30, and that's all good. So liquidity providers are safe in that sense. And then arbitrageurs have incentive to deposit the asset, which is in 30%, because the fee is split 50-50 between the two. So, of course, I'm incentivized to deposit the, the lower reserve. That's how it, it works on a, on a high level, I would say. Okay, got it. So if I can sum it up for Bancor, they introduce a model that turns latent capital into very hyper-productive capital without removing the key incentives that yeah. you know are required for arbitragers to participate in this ecosystem, right? Exactly. So they, they both have a role, yeah. And you know, to your point about oracles, I read somewhere that Bancor also sees a drawback, I guess, in, in using oracles in that um, they're vulnerable to front-running attacks. Is that Oracle that you mentioned, so Chainlink, do they solve this problem or is that still a vulnerability that Bancor sees today? Uh, I, th I think that they will try to, to optimize it. Mm, the way the system will work and the, you know, the dynamic of, of the AMM obviously makes sense with, a, with an Oracle. Like there's no way to you know, had that dynamicity and, and have those weights changing mm -hmm. automatically without an Oracle at the moment. So they need to find a solution, as far as I know, to, to have those weights, you know, reflecting what's happening outside the market, because that's what brings arbitragers, right? And it's, it's like a chain. When the balance is offset compared to centralized exchange, arbitragers comes in and they take the profit from LPs. It's an opposite network effect, right? Where LPs are, are losing basically money and they will not come back to provide liquidity. So that's obviously the problems that AMMs want to solve, the new generations. Keep the liquidity providers safe. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. One important point about Muniswap as well, which I don't think we went over yet, is that Muniswap uses an on-chain Oracle, right? Which is different from Chainlink, which is an external Oracle. Is that feature going to be important in making Muniswap competitive versus a Bancor or a Uniswap? I think so. Well, we have to see, obviously, how it plays out. The problem right now, I would say it really goes to the volatility and, and underlying risks of Ethereum, right? That's what we saw on, on the Black Thursday on, on March. This is the real problem. Of, of oracles like at some point you you scared it they stop working and and you can't really rely on them and the old systems uh, you know as a domino effect uh i think Mooniswap has a fair advantage because of the time lap and 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 they can basically treat this this, this five minute period you know where uh, the amms actually improve the exchange rates slowly compared to being 
you know, dynamic and, and published, published immediately. Anyway, both Muniswap and Markov V2 are extremely, extremely interesting because, you know, there are iterations of iterations of iterations of something that has been working already. So uh, obviously having a model like Carve that has been extremely successful working for volatile assets, it's going to probably be a game changer. Definitely learned a lot there as we talked about the evolution from the OG Uniswap to talking about a number of other next-gen designs, um, as you mentioned, Bancor and Muniswap. That will really take some time to see who wins out in the end. Or maybe there might not be a winner-takes-all. Maybe liquidity will be spread across a few, right? Just how in the centralized exchange space, at the end of the day, it's not like, Binance is going to take the whole pie or OKX is going to take the whole pie, right? There are so many different contracts that are traded. It'll ultimately depend on, again, going back to the root concept, which is how these venues continue to incentivize different players within the ecosystem. Absolutely. Well, the fun part about Uniswap is that, you know, at the beginning, you had traders that said, oh, so cool. I traded on Uniswap. Oh, but you just paid, you know, 5% higher than on Binance. Well, that's okay. <laughs> I, I traded on Juniper, right? The centralized is <laughs> what's what's the problem? So that's not really scalable, <laughs> I would say. Um, but that's how things start, right? With primitive, and then you build on top and you iterate. So I have you know massive respect for any team that creates something and puts out in the wild, and and then the markets improves it basically. So before we move on to the next topic, let's take a quick break and hear a few words about Amber Group. This episode of the Crypto Unstacked podcast is presented by Amber Group. Amber Group is a fully integrated crypto finance platform offering a suite of secondary market services across trading, wealth management, and financing solutions. We are backed by some amazing investors such as Paradigm and Pantera and work with clients and partners all over the world. Head on over to ambergroup.io to learn more about us. That's A-M-B-E-R-G-R-O-U-P dot I-O. Now I want to bring in more of your options trading background, and I want to change gears to talk about the options protocols that we see in DeFi today. You know, there are lots of existing models, and while they've been super interesting, again, going back to this concept of experimentation, there are limitations as well to the models that exist today. So I guess we can focus on two of the more prominent options protocols in DeFi, those being Open and Hedgic. So with Open, they're building on something called the Convexity Protocol, which is a generalized options protocol that enables developers to create options with various parameters. Open relies on Uniswap, which you talked about earlier. As the model currently stands, can you talk about what they've been able to provide for traders who want to trade options in DeFi and also what limitations liquidity providers face on on this platform? Yes, well said. Uh, Open was the probably first mover and we have seen other coming, a similar model, AMM models. And, you know, for someone like me, it's, it's beautiful. It's beautiful to see, you know, experimentation. And I'm, I'm, I'm very keen to see what's going to happen. The convexity protocol is a very versatile protocol. It basically allows to create options using 
some parameters. Mainly, you can decide European and American, so it depends on, on when it's going to expire. And you have the ability to exercise it before or at the expiry. Flexibility on underlying assets, flexibility of call and puts, and, and the kind of collateral. As a high level, uh, the way it works is that a seller deposit collateral in a smart contract, in, in the case of open and cold vaults, and they mint uh, and sell fungible ERC, ERC20 option, which are called O-token in the case of Open, and, and they collect premium, like in any, any sort of option. Buyers are then free to purchase those O-tokens on exchange, in, in this case of, on Uniswap, and as well exercise those O-tokens if it's profitable. So you can think of very high level of those who are willing to mint and sell a token, like um, the users that mint die in the maker systems, right? And it's a different use case, but it's a similar concept. And those who buy and hold O tokens are similar to people that buy and hold die on exchange. Obviously, the use case is completely different, but and that's where it comes the limitation. Uh, in my opinion, the main limitation for the liquidity providers is that, so let's clarify, the liquidity providers are the sellers of the options, right? And you can close or reduce your position only buying other liquidity tokens, and you need to find some same token of the same series. So somebody else issued and then you buy back, right? And all tokens, as we said, trade Uniswap right now. The initial LPs is actually open itself. So they, they kickstart the options who set the initial price based on, on Black Shorts formula. And then, uh, you know, the market and, and the players comes and, and determine new price depending on buying and selling on, on Uniswap. So I would say that on a general level, the LPs have the same issues that we discussed before of impairment loss and you know, what happens on other uh, AMMs. But the major difference here is that those upsets, options, well, they can head to zero. So, you know, and options has a something called time decay, which is, you know, a major factor to consider when you deal with options. You can literally buy something and if it goes the other way, it's going to go to zero in a few days, right? Less than a month, for example. So that's something you really need to consider. Also, another consideration which you can touch later, it's the collateral efficiency for sellers. The very first models, they don't really have an optimal capital efficiency. This is probably very common in early models. We talked about the early AMMs, you know, not as capital efficient, but it's necessary to just kind of get the initial design going out the door so that other people can iterate on the framework and come up with more interesting models. I guess I want to talk about another type of on-chain options protocol called Hedgic. The first version of Hedgic was released, I think, back in February of 2020. And the, the whole point is very similar to Open in that they want to make options trading very easy and to democratize the options writing, so selling capabilities for DeFi traders through a liquidity pool model. Could you talk a bit about some of the interesting features that you find quite useful in the Hedgic model? Sure. So, of course, in, in DeFi composability, but I mean, picking up successful model is 
something the space love and developers love. So options came in and AMMs came in, so why not mix them? <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's a very brave endeavor, but uh, Hedrick managed somehow to, to kick that off. So I'm personally very, very intrigued by, by this new model. The way it was first launched was adding some benefits, obviously, from the buyer that interact with the pool. What does it mean is that if you're a buyer of, of an options against the pool, you would obviously have more freedom on buying maturities and, and strikes. Currently, there are options varying from one day to four weeks, so 28 days of maturity, and you can decide your own strike. So you have a lot of flexibility there. There is flexibility also, I mean, additional flexibility, I would say, and benefits from LPs, which uh, they share the premium and they shared the risk somehow. In the case of a put, the way it works is that a seller locks die and, and the premium is in die, will be distributed between the liquidity providers and in proportion of, of how much die they have allocated in the liquidity pool in the first place. So the amount of options that can be written, depending on the size of how those liquidity providers have been injecting in the pool. Currently, option writers can utilize 80% of the pool liquidity so that at any given time, 20% is available for liquidity providers to withdraw. Generally speaking, a pool liquidity has you know, several benefits in, in liquidity, obviously, and, and user experience. It comes with several implications. Basically, liquidity is, is theoretically efficiently used in Edric or in, in a new MM, I would say. And it's not really divided across smaller series of options. It's, it's just pulled together. And that gives the flexibility from a buyer perspective to choose right, your, your strike. All the unutilized liquidity, so the free liquidity, is always available to withdraw under right new contract. As for any AMM, sellers and buyers don't need to wait for an order to be taken, which is the beauty of it. And it's also something that Open was trying to manage and trying to fix. And you can instead immediately start collecting premium as a seller uh, or immediately purchase downside protection if you see options as an insurance, basically, from a buyer perspective. And uh, these specific models basically cuts off completely the market makers, which are not needed. The very last but not trivial caveat here is that currently EDGIC options are not tokenized. So it can only be exercised. In a way, you cannot resell it. So you're, you're stuck with it. And, and as you know, for any options, buyer uh, you know, should be fully aware that the cost and the premium that you pay, it could decay to zero and you can lose <laughs> all your capital. Then the last touch on this is that I see that DeFi enthusiasts and, and developers and people that are building these protocols, they have an approach of options more like an insurance and more as a linear product while options are all about convexity and all about tail risk and, and tail protection and, and volatility. So I would think and would say that there's a lot of work to be done 
to actually bring those products to something similar to what we see in the outside world. So we are really on the early, early, early days right now in, in auctions on DeFi. Yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting world to explore for sure. And, you know, as you say, a lot of people think of options right now, I guess, more as a linear product, more as an insurance product, but it can also be used for speculative reasons, right? And that's where volatility comes in. And this goes back to your background and what you traded in the traditional markets. There are certain features of potential designs that I know you're thinking about that can really introduce this concept of like diversification by design to enable liquidity providers to be able to do that across different size contracts, different strikes, right? Different tenors. And so this feature is going to be really interesting in, in future designs. And I don't want to give away too much right now because I definitely want our listeners to tune into our bonus episode where you'll give us a, a deep dive there to round out our very high level conversation about options. You know, I, I do want to get your thoughts on the limitations again of these types of decentralized options protocols versus centralized options trading venues. Well, yes, the main one, which is a big enough <laughs> to tackle, I would say is the dynamicity of the price of the option, right? So what happens is that traders, market maker, anybody dealing with options, they know that the option price changes continuously. It's by definition, right? It changes even more than any other traditional assets because while a stock can stay flat forever, if nothing happens, an option doesn't because it's going to decrease by a certain value, which is what the options loses every day until the expiry. So it's like, thinking like an insurance in this case, it's easy to, to do the similarity, right? And the affiliation. An insurance for one year is different of an insurance for six months or an insurance for, for one month, right? So the premium is different. So I think that the fact that these DeFi options don't change and, and they're not dynamic in pricing as in traditional market, it's the main limitation for now and, and the main problems in a sense that I buy an option and I'm stuck with that and it doesn't change the price. It's, it's not so useful like a week later because a week later has a completely different new price. So that's the main limitation. Obviously, the use of Uniswap for open, for example, well, you add additional complexity in a sense that you need to have exposure of both ETH in this case and, and, and the corresponding options. And it means that the LPs are constantly bleeding money from a combination of time VK, uh, which will explain what it is, and the arbitrator. So a very, very important for, for buyer and sellers in this case of open is that, you know, you need to check the liquidity of the series they want to engage before entering a position because you might be stuck with it for forever. It's going to be very hard to exit a position. It's a product that for now, it seems to be only one way, while options should be thought two ways and, and should be thought as a volatility asset class in a way, right? Something that you take a position on volatility. Yeah. And pulling in this you know concept of capital efficiency again, with these early protocols like Open and Hedgic, I guess the lack of margin is also another limitation as well, right? Like I can portfolio margin on Deribit, but I don't think I can do that on these platforms yet, right? 
Exactly. So that's the last bit, I would say. There is this capital efficiency problem. They've been discussing. I mean, I'm uh, always, you know, interested to see solutions. Well, EGIC, uh, from what I heard, is thinking about a, a model where you could make the collateralization ratio flexible. Currently, 100% of the option size, which is the strike, basically, right? It's the collateral that you need to put down, is locked for, for a period chosen by the option holder, right? At the settlement, the difference between the market price and strike for the calls and the strike market price for, for the put is basically sent to the address of the holder. An option holder doesn't really swap the asset for asset locked on the contract, but they receive a net PL. So in the future, it could be possible to choose the collateralization ratio before buying an option. So say a buyer could pay in full and be covered for 100% of the collateralization or choose a lower ratio. And, and obviously that would result in a net PL limitation. So sort of like a cap, I would say, but not really. Is a cap implied on the collateralization that you put down and, and so changes your payoff. Open instead, I heard is thinking to improve the capital efficiency in the new version, including spreads. So, you know, call spreads are and, and put spreads are basically structures where you buy and sell two calls to spread with two different strikes. And that would basically have something like given an exposure to a limited range of prices and consequentially that would also imply a lower collateralization. These are the steps taken or they will be taken, I think, by these two projects. Me personally, I think that we might need some sort of new primitives like across collateralizations and, you know, margins, as you said, of course, and maybe a like a better model for options on AMMs that it will comes with an improved collateralization as a setting and thinking like delta hedging or caps and, and so on. But, you know, I don't want to spoil too much. <laughs> yeah, there, there are a lot of juicy bits we'll talk about in the bonus episode. Uh, so definitely don't want to dive into too much details. But, you know, I guess now it would be good to move on to the third portion of our conversation, which is going to touch on these token-based incentive mechanisms in DeFi protocols through the lens of you know various DeFi governance tokens. And you know throughout the series so far, we've been talking about how the distribution of these tokens to platform users are becoming a very powerful incentivization mechanism to kickstart interest and bootstrap liquidity on these DeFi platforms. I know that you coordinate this movement called token engineering from Hong Kong, and there are various branches, I guess, all over the world. But you know, given your experience advising a lot of these token projects out there, could you share more examples of interesting DeFi tokens that you see today and also the benefits of holding these tokens? Sure. Well, as you said, a token is a token. If it's a DeFi token, it's still a token. <laughs> and that's at least my, my approach. So I have to touch on briefly on tokens in general. When I look at any sort of token, DeFi shouldn't be an exception, in my opinion. What I want to see is a solid crypto network, which is a tokenized representation of a digital scarcity to incentivize a distributed network of 
agents, actors, whatever, traders, whatever. And those actors actually contribute some valuable resources to the network. Could be liquidity, could be, you know, anything. And the networks in exchange remunerates or should remunerate those actors with the native token. That means that the token has always a centric role in the crypto network itself. So what I see in general, when we discuss with many, many teams, it starts with an idea, starts with a protocol, and then sometimes the token is on top. While the way I like to see tokens is starting from day one in a crypto network, like they are part of, of the whole structure. So what I like to see in a crypto network are incentives that accelerate the network effect. And I think DeFi should be no exception. So you need to deploy your token to make, or let's say, let's use a better word, to incentivize the actors, the users, the traders, whatever you want to call it, to do what you want them to do on your network. So the token is, is your best friend in a way, right? On that, several categories obviously are in DeFi. And, and the best way, I think, is to divide them on, um, on use case. And, and then we try to, to see who is doing better than others, at least in, in my opinion. So we, we just spoke about derivatives. So uh, say synthetics and Yuma, FutureSwap, they are they're all in this space. Well, synthetics obviously, uh, you know, started a while ago, but I think they did an awesome job to keep the token always at the center of their crypto network. Right now, it has two main rewards coming from staking and exchange fees. But I like Synthetics and SNX, the native token, because of the recurring incentives that the team was able to, to, to provide to the holders. So it's not just like something that starts in a way, but evolves. And the token is always at the center of their mechanism, basically. And that increases network effects. So what I want to see from other teams in the space is to always focus on the token, giving new capabilities to actual value with new models or new iterations or new products coming out. For, for example, Aave, uh, on now a move to the lending and, and, and borrowing category, right? Compound and Maker and Aave, they're all part of this, this category. Well, it's a good example because they have a... Uh, percentage of the borrowing fees is split between the integrations, referral, and the burning. And that's, you know, something very, very important to keep in mind in this high composability market. The newly addition of staking with the Aave Economics basically comes into play with their safety model and a staking mechanism for Aave Natting token to act as an insurance against some very drastic events the one that occurred in March, for example. So in return, stakers earn Aave as a safety incentive in addition to all the protocol fees and what was there before. As you asked me to, to touch on, there is a component of governance and it's quite interesting. So the component of governance in their protocol comes like having skin in the game in the sense that with Harvey, you are basically creating a self-governed insurance. It acts like a backstop similar to Maker, but 
with the staking addition. So in this case, governance means bearing the risk of something going wrong, which is, I like it, right? I like skin in the game. I like the holders to not just profit, but also run a risk for that profit. What we see right now is a huge challenge for those teams to keep users and have a user you know, retention or call it like a mod. Uh, and, and you really need a brand. You really need a brand and you really need loyalty and stickiness. We have seen major shift of liquidity from protocol to protocol, from aggregator to aggregator, chasing yields. And there won't be a winner takes all, but the engineering of the incentives should be done around you know, tokens that are the most important thing in every protocol release. So... Keep in mind always how the token accrues value in any release that you do. The last one, things like Bancor and, and Balancer. We we talk about Bancor, which which is quite interesting and already, and their token is basically earning pro rata trading fees plus an inflation. And the last one is cross-chain. It's something I'm very excited to see and, and tokens say like Ren or or Rune for Torchain, they're mostly used as a collateral to earn the right as a node to process transactions. So they obviously increase value with the transactions and with the network effect of coming with that. And, and they provide liquidity. So this, the vision is to swap tokens in different chain. And for every dollar of a swappable token in the network, the protocol dictates a like an amount of the native token to be staked to perform the action, which I really like it as a skin in the game. Very insightful points you made there across various token use cases. As you mentioned, user retention is super important as we see these types of liquidity shifts across platforms. And ultimately, that's what we're seeing with these yield farming situations as well, right? The, the meme of rotating crops goes back to your point Exactly. If there are greater rewards to be earned on one platform over another, you better bet that users are just going to flock over to get higher yields. You talked on the point of REN protocol and their token, and I'm glad you did because you know one of the projects that they're working on with us, Amber Group, is called KeeperDAO. Very broadly speaking, what we're seeing now on centralized derivatives platforms is the idea of tokenized insurance fund models where users can claim a passive income from successful liquidations on the platform. And the more you think about it, KeeperDAO acts like a tokenized insurance fund, but for the DeFi space. And you know, to give a bit of background, KeeperDAO is a smart contract pool, which enables users to pull capital into Ethereum-based smart contracts to collectively profit from on-chain arbitrage and liquidation opportunities. KeeperDAO will be introducing a native token at some point, which will serve as the mechanism to incentivize and reward both the liquidity providers and the Keeper participation uh, over the long run. And that's really the goal, right? Long-term incentive mechanisms. Could you talk about... I guess your your thoughts on what this token distribution model might look like? Sure, yeah. So to me, the best way to understand how to, you know, design a system or design the mechanism is what do I want my protocol to do? 
<laughs> this is the first questions I, I asked myself. And when I looked at KeeperDAO, uh, to me, um, you know, it, it struck for being a sort of special purpose liquidity pool where agents can come and, and borrow and, you know, go leverage some arbitrage or liquidations on any sort of opportunities. So that's the purpose. Um, the proceeds then go back to the pool and in that way, the pool keeps growing, right? So that's crucial on the token. Why? Because uh, if you see from above, it, it's like a decentralized optimization tool, right? That can be seen as a general insurance fund for, for DeFi because you have those agents that are going to capture all those inefficiency present in the mm -hmm. in the protocol. Technically, you know, there are some special contracts that they, they call underwriters that they sort of wrap those positions. And, you know, this feature let the keeper to close user's position, but without necessarily liquidating them. So there is a win-win game where you minimize the user losses. And it's going to be very interesting because, you know, in, in various extreme swings and volatile market, I really want to see how, how it plays out. And, and um, underwriters charge a small fee, but in theory, it should be better than what you would lose if you would be liquidated in a normal way. So as discussed more in general, you need to focus on what scarce resource the network needs the most. And, and this is what you should incentivize the most. So when I look at, you know, how can I make my token function properly, I ask the questions, what scarce resources needed? So looking at KeeperDAO, the scarce resource or service or, you know, call it whatever, but whatever is needed from the protocol is the most efficient strategy for capturing inefficiencies and bringing back to the pool, right? So this is what you really need the most. So protocol-wise, there is this interesting future where keepers are incentivized to collaborate. Uh, it's a cool way, but maybe in the future, uh, you could have a sort of like democratization of the ranking of those strategies. And according to rewards, uh, you know, you're, you're trying to reward the most profitable keepers so that it creates the network effect where everybody tries to improve the strategies and they're incentivized to do so, they bring better returns to the pool and liquidity providers are encouraged to come and bring new liquidity to the pool. So that's where you have the successful network effect. To sum up, I would focus on incentivize keepers to create better and better and better strategies. Mm -hmm. Well said. Again, we'll cover KeeperDAO more in depth later in the series, but you know, I did want to wrap up by asking if, if you can share more about Lemniscap, you know, how you guys are involved with DeFi and what are you guys seeing that's exciting in the broader crypto space right now? It's quite interesting from our perspective because two fifths of the team has a, you know, strong affinity with the financial markets. The, the managing partner, Roderick, and, and myself used to trade options, and he has way longer experience than myself. So we actually moved to crypto because of 
of a transitions that we would have seen sooner or later from the traditional markets into the blockchain, right? So for us, DeFi was our one of the main driver to move into the space. But the reality is that it wasn't even existing DeFi <laughs> because in 2017, nothing like that existed in a way. So we deployed capital super early on in the space. We are the first backers on Kava, for example, when they started as a stable for Ripple and then they pivoted several times until they come today. So right now we see, you know, many people and jumping into DeFi, obviously it's very hyped at the moment. In a way, it's healthy because you need a lot of iteration. You need a lot of um, teams trying out and somebody will get hurt and that's okay. But we need uh, complete transformation basically and transition from traditional market to to more decentralized uh, landscape. And we're very active, very active in the space. We have invested in FutureSwap, uh, super excited to see how it's going to uh, play out um, the graph, obviously, Kava, as I said, uh, last night we had the uh, impressive listing of uh, Serum, uh, you know, the decentralized uh, cross-chain exchange. We have been backing also that team. And um, for us, DeFi or, you know, the financial transition to blockchain is one of the main verticals we are looking at and we are always looked at. So we will keep providing uh, the you know maximum value to teams and we really like to interact as early as possible to the teams. We like to take the risk of investing in a product which is not 100% defined, but you know we bet on the teams that they are capable enough to pull out something and gain traction. And you, know, you don't need to have a product 100% defined a to Z on day one, right? Things evolve and the community feedback is very important. The market feedback is very important. Yeah, for sure. And this segues nicely into my next question, which I love to ask all of my guests, which is as an investor in the crypto space, you know, what's your most contrarian view right now? Oh, <laughs> yeah, this is interesting. This is something I, I try not to share with investors obviously <laughs> but <laughs> but um it's actually you know it touched back to the reasons why i came to asia in a way or i left it's quite interesting right now for what we see in hong kong but it's why i left us in a sense that if you ask me what's my you know most contrarian view as an investor i would say obviously i devoted my career to crypto and and i'm extremely bullish i'm extremely optimistic and and uh, i don't think there is another way forward except in decentralization and crypto at the same time <laughs> i have to say that i think that the big guys will come chasing us and they will run after us and i expect a massive pullback especially on you know the main three verticals that the blockchain movement is trying to take over, which is the monetary system, which is a more democratic internet and, and, and more democratic uh, model for internet. And the third one is the banking system and the financial institutions, right? And with what we see with DeFi. So I would expect that one day, I don't want to say governments, but I have to say governments <laughs> or, or corporations or banks, they will say, okay, 
wait a minute, wait a minute, this, you know, Bitcoin is all these funky people were, they, they're capturing my alpha. They are capturing my margins, you know, for corporates. And they will not be happy. I think that that day we will need to be as united, as decentralized as possible, as strong as possible to defend our values. And we don't have to be too scared of, of the big guys coming along because the movement should be stronger. I don't see this happening next month or next year. I actually think it's going to happen on the second half of the decade. So we have a good time to prepare and to be as solid and as robust to be an attackable. Yeah, build a strong foundation for yeah. these bigger institutions to come in for sure. Nicola, now I want to move on to the last part of our conversation, which is just some fun, rapid fire questions. Are you ready? Uh, yeah, <laughs> I have to. <laughs> <laughs> What's your favorite DeFi funny money? Um, oh, very good question. Maybe, maybe Tendis and what we have seen with this nuts and chicken stuff. <laughs> It, at least it's funny, right? <laughs> it's funny from day one. I'm happy to announce you were the third person in this series to consider attendees your favorite DeFi funny money. <laughs> oh. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's just because, you know, if it needs to be funny, it, it needs to be funny all the way, right? Yeah. I'm, I have to say, I don't, um, I wish I had time to play with those things. I, I really don't. Uh, but I see a lot of funny things around. So, you know, when I go on Twitter and I scroll down, I see some funny <laughs> stuff. It's impossible not to laugh. Exactly. If you weren't so consumed by DeFi currently, what else within crypto would you be following or reading up on? What else in crypto? Well, privacy. Privacy because, not really because, you know, as I said, they will chase us, but it's because I think sooner or later we will care more and more and more about privacy, about our our data. There are so many, many, many protocols also that we backed, um, Neem, Bitstalk, uh, and they tackle privacy bold. Uh, and, and it's something we love. And I, I think privacy will be taking a larger portion of our consciousness mm -hmm. <laughs> in the future, in the futures. While right now we really have no idea what we give up as information. So that's, that's going to be very important. If you had to choose would you be a Bitcoin maximalist or an Ethereum diehard? Bitcoin maximalist. Oh, interesting. Yes. We'll just leave it at that then. <laughs> yes. Great. Well, Nicola, how can our listeners get in touch with you and learn more about Lemniscap? Sure. Well, Lemniscap has a uh, you know medium, as a webpage at lemniscap.com. We have Twitter, very active, and LinkedIn. Feel free to shoot us a message and interact especially for teams that wants to build something, you know, revolutionary. We are whole years and here to help. Awesome. Well, Nicola, it was great to have you on Crypto Unstacked. Listeners, stay tuned for a bonus episode with Nicola, where we dive into some really novel stuff about on-chain options trading. Thank you, Leslie, for the opportunity. It has been very much fun today. As always, hope you enjoyed this week's Cup of Crypto. If you like what you heard, Please share and subscribe on Spotify and anchor.fm slash crypto unstacked. Do engage with us through social media. I'll provide details in the show notes and connect with me on Twitter at Les Lambeau 
That's L-E-S-L-A-M-B-0. Would love to chat with you. Thanks so much for tuning in. Take care and see you at our next episode.